Creepy is defined as an adjective, referring to something that causes feelings of unease, distress, or fear. But what if that's the stuff you're into? August 24th and 25th, CreepyCon comes to the Knoxville Convention Center, a celebration of horror, Halloween, and all things creepy. Featuring the Rigger and Mortis Brothers traveling sideshow, a zombie beauty pageant, the Scream Queen contest, a Halloween cake contest, film screenings, and more. Appearances from Naomi Grossman from American Horror Story, Santiago Cirillo from The Walking Dead, The Haunted Travelers, Richard Ruland and J.B. Coates, the cast of all your favorite Stage Diver Radio podcasts. Greetings and salutations out there, sports the fans all more. around the universe. The this is another sterling episode of Modern Day Gladiators. I am your humble Knoxville. and glorious host, the man in the arena, Michael Shibley. Hope you guys are having a wonderful day out there. It is another beautiful, hot scorcher of a day here in Knoxville, but I'm glad to be bringing you another wonderful episode of Modern Day Gladiators here on the Stage Diver Radio Network. And of course, you can listen to all the great stuff we've got here at stagediverradio.com where you can hear, of course, half old scruffy little podcast, J&B's DLC, One Fall or 60 Minutes, Deadbeat Radio, People in My Neighborhood, all the great stuff you can get. You can listen to that again at stagediverradio.com. And, of course, you can also listen to us wherever you get your fine podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And, of course, all those places, please like, share, subscribe, comment. Let us know what you think. Rate and review. It helps us make it better, and it helps us get that bigger audience. We can make this an even better, more globally dominating podcast network out there. And of course, you can always let us know what you think as well. If you got any questions or comments as well, you can always hit us up at stagediverradio at gmail.com. And of course, you can always call the hotline. If you got questions, you want to ask me a specific sports question, I am happy to answer it. We'll probably bring it up even on the podcast as well. And that number is 865-888-0109. So you can check that out as well. But again, my name is Michael Shibley, and this is Modern Day Gladiators, episode two here on the Stage Diver Radio Network, and we're here to bring it to you. We got some big news as well from around the sports world, and we got to lead it off again with college football. You thought everything, the college football controversies were going to go away after this Urban Meyer things that have been happening there in Columbus, but no, they have to go now to College Park, Maryland, the University of Maryland, the head coach, DJ Durkin. He was placed on administrative leave last weekend as the university investigates allegations of abuse and disparagement in the program following the death uh, back in of offensive lineman Jordan McNair, uh, also director of athletic training Wes Robinson, as long as head football athletic trainer Steve Nordwall, they were also placed on leave, as well as assistant uh, athletic director Rick Court was placed on leave. He just coming out earlier today as we record this, he has just been fired and relieved of his duties. Uh, offensive coordinator Matt Canada, who was the offensive coordinator for LSU, uh, that's where many of you here in SEC country would previously know him. He has now to serve as the interim head coach as this goes through the system of investigations and everything there. Durkin, he was placed on leave after reports came out that McNair, again an offensive lineman, 
He, uh, 19-year-old kid, really. I mean, he's technically an adult, but 19 years old, me being 35, I see a 19-year-old as a kid at this point, died of heat stroke after showing visible signs of distress during workouts on May 29th. They were doing 100-yard sprints at the time, uh, including difficulty standing, he's seizing. McNair died June 13th. And also during this time, reports mainly done through ESPN also came through with allegations from current and former players and staff of bullying, verbal abuse, humiliation directed at players. Coaches reportedly endorsed unhealthy eating habits and used obscenity-laced epithets to mock players' masculinity. One player noted he was belittled verbally after passing out during a drill. So, now again, all of this really has very little to do how Maryland's going to do this season on the field. Maryland, they are stuck in the Big Ten Eastern Division. Again, I still am not used to having Maryland in the Big Ten. I'm so used to them being an ACC school. So this is still weird, but they're stuck in a in the division. They're looking up always, and they're going to continue to do this for a long, long time. They're looking up at Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State in that division. They're looking up. They're fighting with Indiana and Illinois probably to be see who's going to be the best of the not- other four teams in that division. I mean, pretty much, they're fighting for fifth place is what they're fighting for at this point. But that that's beside the point because, again, uh, Jordan McNair, he's dead. And it is just something that you've got to look at and see how is this culture going on. And I know that, of course, when something tragic like this happens at a university where a player dies, especially other circumstances, especially in football. It's always been, what is too much? That's always been the thing. Because, I mean, this goes back all the way to when, you know, Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler back in the Big Ten, and, of course, Bear Bryant, the infamous Junction Boys, back when uh, Bear Bryant was head coach at Texas A&M back in the day, and they're just at this almost like, it looked like a prison camp, really, that these guys were at, and, you know, they've got... They had each uh, unit, the offense and defense, each had like one towel that had water in it. And you had to like squeeze and drink off that rag. And then they had salt tablets and things like that. That's that's not how we do things anymore. We know about proper hydration and about things. And one of the things, too, that you talk about with culture, I understand there's plenty of coaching systems out there. We we all know that there is, of course, just the uh, the yelling and screaming that m- most people see when they see a football coach, you know, man up, let's get tough, you guys got to get tougher out there. And then there's just other ways of doing things. But the trainers and everything, it looked like, according to these reports, he was showing so many signs of visible signs of distress. Because one of the things that you argue a lot with with people is you don't know if they're just getting pushed to their limit and they're trying to get to that limit or if they're past the limit. And I disagree with that vehemently. You can tell. I mean, I've been on teams in, in, you know, youth sports and everything where you can tell when a kid is not looking good, when he needs to be sat down, he needs some water, he needs attention instead of, you know, he's just reached his physical limit and he can't go any further. There's a balance there. And from what I, again, I have read from these reports, it doesn't look like the people in charge there at these these training camps there back in May were doing the proper things. And then you look, of course, at the abuse and different things like that. Of course, you're going to get former players that might have an axe to grind and things like that come out, but it doesn't happen everywhere. That's the thing. People are like, oh, this kind of stuff happens all the time. You don't see former players coming out of the woodwork 
everywhere talking about a toxic culture there. I mean, when Butch Jones got fired, a lot of players came out and said certain things, but they didn't talk about just verbal abuse and other crazy things like that. So it's a balance, and the University of Maryland right now, it looks like they have pretty much failed in protecting this kid, really, when it comes down to it. They did not do a great job of doing this, and it looks like some of these coaches might pay for that mistake. I mean, and this is a university with the University of Maryland who should know better when it comes to this. Again, this is not the same thing, but back in 1986, when Len Bias died, he overdosed on cocaine pretty much right after getting drafted by the Celtics. Like, within that weekend, he overdosed on cocaine and died. And it set, you know, the Celtics, Len Bias was supposed to be almost a replacement for Larry Bird. He was supposed to come in and be the next great Celtic after Larry Bird finally retired. And it it affected them. It affected the University of Maryland basketball program, set them back a long way. So when you look at all of this, Maryland, their whole university culture, even though 1986 was a long time ago, I mean, it's over 30 years ago, they still need to know better that this can't happen. And it even came out today as we record this. The University of Maryland president, uh, Wallace D. Lowe, uh, he said, and again, this is on Tuesday, said the school accepts legal and moral responsibility for the mistakes made by its athletic training stamp staff at a workout on May 29th, which ultimately led to Jordan McNair dying from heat stroke. So it's good to see that it looks like the higher-ups at Maryland are accepting responsibility, but where does that leave Coach Durkin? I mean, he was brought in to rebuild Maryland to at least make them some sort of a contender as they transitioned from the ACC to the Big Ten. And right now it looks like that might not happen. I don't think Durkin's going to survive this. Urban Meyer might survive at Ohio State. We'll see how some of those instances as more of them come to light and of course we'll break all that down once it gets announced here on on modern day gladiators but I don't see really how DJ Durkin is going to survive this I think uh, they're going to have this interim coach Matt Canada is probably going to lead the way but uh, it's not looking good for Maryland especially they open the season on September 1st against Texas there at the Redskins Stadium there in Landover Maryland so it's a, another bad situation, but sometimes it just seems like the people in power and in charge have to know better. They have to understand when a player is either just not pushing hard enough or when they are in need of medical assistance. Because, again, we've come a long way with medical technology and hydration and being aware of these things. Those people need to know what it is and be able to identify it. And these guys seem to have failed in doing that. And it cost a young man his life. So it sucks. It's a terrible situation. But hopefully, again, when things like this happen, hopefully we learn from it and we move on from there. And it doesn't happen like that again. But moving on to happier news here on Modern Day Gladiators, we've got, again, we previewed the uh, the group of five, some of the lower conferences there in 
Uh, college football, as the season gets closer and closer, it's coming. You can see it from here. It's great. I can't wait. Tennessee, West Virginia is happening September 1st. I am just giddy with excitement at this point. The anticipation is wonderful. What's great about the anticipation and everything is previewing all the other great college football conferences we've got going and seeing who's going to win everything. What's going to happen? I can't wait to see. We got to make picks. That's what happens in the world of college football. We go out there and we make picks. So what I've got here is we're going to break down some of these other big conferences that have the re- the conferences really that have the shot at making the college football playoff and who can come out of there and make some noise and maybe be your national champion in the year 2018. And we're going to start with two of the 12s. We're going to start with a pair of 12s, the Big 12 and the Pac-12. We're going to start in the Midwest for the most part uh, with the Big 12. Really, it's still Oklahoma's to lose. They're three-time Big 12 champions, and I think they're going to get their fourth. I've got Oklahoma winning it. Yes, they don't have Baker Mayfield anymore. They've lost some key components on the offensive line. They've lost some key components on defense. But head coach Lincoln Riley is a darn good football coach. He knows his stuff. He knows what he's doing there. And no matter who the quarterback is, he's got a lot of talent around him. By top to bottom, the best talent in the conference there in the Big 12, including running back Rodney Anderson, so and a slew of great wide receivers. So it's pretty easy to break in a new quarterback when you've got all those great skill position players to throw to. And what's, of course, interesting is you've got, though, they could go and win the Big 12, but I don't know if Oklahoma's going to go undefeated. I mean, they start with a couple of tough and interesting games. They start off with those Owls. We talked about them last week. I think they've got the best chance to get to one of these New Year's Six Bowl games. Lane Kiffin and the Florida Atlantic Owls go to Norman, Oklahoma to open the season. And then in the next week, you've got the gritty little Bruins at UCLA with new head coach Chip Kelly. So it's going to be a tough road to go to start with Oklahoma, but I do think they get their fourth straight Big 12 championship. Though, who are they going to play in that championship game? Again, you've got 10 teams in the Big 12, which I know is confusing because you also have 14 teams in the Big 10, so that's confusing as well. It's college football. Don't ask me to explain it anymore because if you don't get it at this point, you're not going to. But anyway, what uh, it goes through is the top two teams, they all play each other, and then what ends up going on is the top two teams play each other again in a championship game, and I think that's going to be West Virginia. I think is going to be the second-best team in the Big 12, and definitely the West Virginia Mountaineers have the best quarterback. They've got Will Greer under center, the transfer from Florida. He's beaten Tennessee once when he was at Florida, and at least right now in my brain, he's probably going to do it again when West Virginia and Tennessee play September 1st there in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. But he only played in 10 games last year before he was sidelined with an injury, but he threw 3,490 yards and 34 touchdowns in those 10 games. Pretty darn good. One of the best quarterbacks in the country, and it helps when you're throwing to one of the best wide receivers in the country in Bolitnikoff finalist, Uh, David Sills the fifth. He had 18 touchdowns last year. That's pretty darn good as well. The thing with Oklahoma and most of the teams in the Big 12, they got to learn to stop people. That's the tough thing for them. Are they going to be able to put the stops to them? Are they going to be able to make the team punt occasionally? You can't just have these huge score fests that look like basketball scores all the time if you're going to be contending for a national championship. 
So again, I've got Oklahoma getting the championship. I've got West Virginia as the runner-up. Some other teams to look out for that can make some noise. You've got to look at TCU. Gary Patterson's always a solid out there. Even though if they've got to retool their defense, they're always tough on defense, especially in the Big 12. They're tough on defense, which doesn't maybe go with some of these other schools, but it does in the Big 12. The Horned Frogs, always fun to watch them. Got to love that purple there. I enjoy it there in Fort Worth. Uh, so you've got TCU there. Texas, Tom Herman in year two. The, doesn't have the Longhorns exactly where they need to be, though they've come close. They had a lot of close games last year, including that overtime thriller against USC. Still not quite there, but I think they're going to make a lot more noise. They're going to be a lot better overall team there in the Big 12. And also Oklahoma State. Is this the year Mike Gundy finally puts it all together? He flirted with Tennessee again with a head coaching opening. Again, I think Tennessee did more of the flirting. I think uh, Mike Gundy just used it to leverage a big contract, which is what he got. So there's that. Meanwhile, Oklahoma State, are they going to be able to... They always find a way to screw something up. They always shoot themselves in the foot, whether it be a freak play like the Central Michigan thing or just they, they, they lose a game like against Iowa State that they should win. Just weird things have happened there with Oklahoma State. One of these years, maybe they'll finally put it all together and contend for a national championship, just not a Big 12 championship. I don't see it this year. I've still got the Sooners being, again, your Big 12 champions. Moving out to the West Coast in the Pac-12, where it was an interesting year for the Pac-12. Kind of a down year in a lot of ways, because you did not have a Pac-12 represented in the college football playoff, so that was, of course, a downer. They did have nine teams qualify for bowls and play in bowl games. The problem is they went one and eight in those bowl games. That's not good. Not good at all. And, of course, a lot of those changes led to five new head coaches uh, with some of this not goodness going on, if that's even a word. We're making up words here on uh, Modern Day Gladiators. But uh, Arizona got uh, Kevin Sumlin, the former Texas A&M coach, is there. New head coach. Uh, the Arizona State Sun Devils are going with uh, former New York Jets head coach. And he's been a... TV analyst for the last 10 years in Herman Edwards. Oregon State's got Jonathan Smith. Oregon's got Mario Cristobal. And UCLA, of course, with the biggest hire where they got Chip Kelly, who had, of course, been coaching in the... uh, He got Oregon up to just national, complete national prominence there. And then he went to the NFL. That didn't work. He spent a year here in the booth. And now he's back where I think he belongs coaching college football, especially out west in the Pac-12. He is the new head coach with UCLA. A. But you look, if you have to rank and pick winners here in the conference, in the North Division, I gotta go with Washington. They're still the best out there with Jake Browning and Miles Gaskin. Just there, they are a great dynamic duo at quarterback and running back. I love them, plus Chris Peterson calling all the shots. He's a darn good coach. I really like what he's doing. I think Washington's going to be in the national picture for years to come as long as Chris Peterson is there. It's going to be interesting, though, because they've got a really tough opening game. They've got to travel to Atlanta, and they're playing Auburn on September 1st there in that beautiful Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. So we'll see where it goes from there with the Pac-12. It's always tough to have a barometer game in one of these openers, but I love the high-quality opponents when you've got big teams like Washington and Auburn playing each other to open the year. The other team to look out for probably in the Pac-12 is Stanford. 
the sturdy, just Stanford Cardinal. They're there. And, of course, they've got probably the best offensive player in the country in running back Bryce Love. He is just awesome. I hope he has another great year for the Stanford Cardinal out there. Of course, they're always really solid on their line play. They're always solid on defense. So we'll see where it goes from there. I don't know if they're going to be able to be well enough to contend for the national championship. But again, always a solid school there. And I've got them as runner-up to Washington in the Pac-12 North. I think a lot of that, though, has to do as well with their opening month of games. They start versus San Diego State, which is always a tough game especially against California teams. The Aztecs always play these Pac-12 teams tough. Then they've got USC, and then they're at Oregon and at Notre Dame all before October 1st. So we'll see. If they come out of that undefeated, we might be able to talk a little bit more. But right now, I don't think they're probably going to drop at least one of those games, if not two of them. That's a tough road to hoe, but we'll see what happens with the rest of of the Stanford Cardinal season once we get to October. Meanwhile, in the South, just kind of a mediocre division this year. No team really, really stands out. The best one, though, I've got to go with USC. Yes, they don't have Sam Darnold, but that's not going to stop them from being the best team in this Southern division. They've got a really solid and experienced offensive line, which is a great thing to have when you're breaking in a new quarterback. And they've got a strong defense, which, hey, you got a good defense, you can win a lot of games with that. Meanwhile, Arizona, they've probably got the most exciting player in the Pac-12 in their quarterback, Khalil Tate. The problem is there with Kevin Sumlin is, is he going to be able to have a defense to stop anybody? That's what you've got to look for there. And then, of course, Utah is always solid, but I just don't think they have enough talent to contend in the, with the top dogs in the Pac-12 and be a championship team this year. But that's our Big 12 and Pac-12 preview here on Modern Day Gladiators. Hope you guys enjoyed that. We're going to take a quick break, but don't you worry. When we get back, there's a tiger back making some roars on the golf course. We'll break down that and more with Shibbles and Bits coming up after the break here on Modern Day Gladiators. Hey guys, you remember when we recorded that commercial? Yeah, dude. Yeah. Nailed it. Well, apparently we have to do a shorter, more professional commercial. Oh, boo. Mm. Ugh. Sam's going to be here soon, so we'll just dump that off on him. Hey guys, totally just got here. How's it going? Oh, How's perfect. It going, man? What's up, dude? Let's uh, go. Yeah, so we got to do a commercial. Yeah. And it's got to sound real professional. Professional. Super yeah. professional. Very. Um, All right. You got okay. this. Yeah. Don't, don't listen. Okay. You got it. Shut up, okay. <clears throat> Coming every Monday from the Stage Diver Radio Network. Ew. Uh, gross. Really? Yeah. You got this, man. Don't worry about Shut it. Shut up, Bingy. Hi as fuck, Lander. Do you like conspiracies? Movies? How about the occasional dick joke? <laughs> Sounding like an asshole? <sighs> Try hard. Just, yeah. no, no, you got this. You know, shut the fuck up, Bingy. Fuck this. You, you know what this is? Know. This is a pit of hate. That's what we are. We are the yeah. monstrous doom child stage diver keeps in their attic. That's true. So just check us out if you feel like hating yourself for that day. Fuck this. Yeah. Pretty much nailed it again. Yeah. Welcome back here to Modern Day Gladiators on the Stage Diver Radio Network. Again, I am your humble host, the man in the arena, Michael Shibley. Let's go through some of these great sports items that might not be making the headlines that some of the other stuff has, or maybe it's just weirdness going on or some cool things happening that you might not know about. Whatever it is, they're bits of sports stuff, including a major one. This is probably the biggest thing we've ever talked about, but let's start. Let's hit up Shibbles and Bits. 
Ah, oh, I love having that theme. Oh, it's great. Love it. Always. But anyway, welcome to Shibbles and Bits. And we got to talk, of course, the big, big news is the PGA Championship happened over the weekend. And your PGA Champion is Brooks Kepka. He won the PGA Championship. It's his second of the year. He also won the U.S. Open, so congratulations to him. His third all-time, he is the defending U.S. Open champion. There have not been back-to-back winners of the U.S. Open since Curtis Strange back in the late 80s. So you've got to just your hats off to him for that. So congratulations, though, to Brooks Kepka, who it just is a muscle guy. I mean, really, when you look at it, you, you would think golfers are not guys who just work out all the time, but... You know, that's changed a lot. You've got him. He's able to just to bomb it down the fairway. I mean, on a par four, those of you who aren't as familiar with golf, I mean, you get a lot of distance on the drive. You're in the fairway, and then you use a wedge for your second shot. I mean, that gives you such great accuracy to get on the green. It's amazing. And that's what he was able to do. And it was good that he was able to do that and do it so well because Tiger Woods came in second. He made a charge, and it was amazing to watch. It was fun. I felt like it was 2008 all over again, the last time Tiger won a major. But it was cool to see him back in the Sunday red and making noise. Yes, he made a lot of noise at the British Open, but he fell back there uh, as he just right after making the turn onto the back nine and came in, I think, sixth in the British Open, but he was solo seventh, or solo, not seventh, second. Wow, I can't talk today. He was solo second by himself, shooting a 64, which was the lowest round on a Sunday he had ever shot in all the greatness of Tiger Woods, and it was awesome to see. The crowd was going nuts, and, you know, when he made that birdie on 18, he had a fist bump going and everything. That was just great to see. It was awesome. It was amazing. It's great to have Tiger just back in it because, again, as much as golf has been trying to push all these new stars and Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and now Brooks Kepka and Jason Day, all these guys, still not Tiger Woods. It's not them yet. Tiger Woods, as we say, he moves the needle. Ratings were up. 70% compared to the PGA Championship last year. That's how much they were up because Tiger was in contention and challenging on the back nine on Sunday. If Tiger could have hit any fairways, he just could. He was not accurate off the tee at all. He was in the rough and all other kinds of craziness. The whole, just the whole back nine, the whole round, really. But the fact that he was still able to do that and shoot a 64, imagine what he could have done if he had landed in the fairway on any of this stuff. so But it was great to have Tiger Woods back in contention. But, of course, we have to lead with Brooks Kepka getting the win because we always congratulate winners here on Modern Day Gladiators. Winners come first here on Modern Day Gladiators. So, again, hats off to Brooks Kepka, And we'll see. Maybe he's one of these guys that's going to just go on a tear. It's going to be interesting because next year with the PGA, they've made a change to their schedule with the way the majors are. First, the Players' Championship, which isn't a major. It's kind of the fifth major, really, when it comes to it. But that's going to be played in March. And then you've got the Masters in April. And then you've got the PGA Championship is going to be in May. And then in June, you've got the U.S. Open, always on Father's Day weekend. And then in July, you've got the British Open. So it's just a tear. And I think that's really, really going to be great for golf to just have all these big events happening like this instead of having the Masters happening in 
you know, in, in April, in early April, and then you've just got to wait until the U.S. Open. I mean, these are the big events, and that's what golf needs. They need all these big events to happen, and they don't need it butting up against even preseason football, unfortunately. That's just the nature of the business. So great to have all of this and looking forward to next year. Maybe Tiger can finally – I don't think he's ever going to catch Jack with 18 majors, Jack Nicholas, but – I do think he can maybe win one or two now. I mean, this has given me hope. It'd be awesome to see it because we love a good comeback story. And that's what this would be if Tiger can finally get over the hump and win a major. So that's awesome to see. Another big thing that broke over the week, uh, over this past week since the last episode aired, new NCAA basketball policies have come out. Uh, Some of the big things that have happened to make some changes because, again, a lot of the schools, some of the schools have been under investigation by the FBI and the shoe companies and bad business dealings and just fraudulent business dealings, really not even bad, just fraudulent been going on. But some of the things they've made to kind of alleviate some of those issues are that underclassmen can now enter the draft, participate in the combine. That's what they used to be able to do. They used to be able to do that, but then they had to go back to the school. Now they can even stay through the draft. If they don't get drafted, they can go back to school. So I think that's great. A little bit of what they do in baseball, at least with college baseball and professional baseball. Of course, they have 3,000 rounds in the baseball draft. But uh, what would happen in anyway with high school baseball is if you get drafted, but you don't like where you got drafted, say you got drafted in round 2,742, you could return to your school or, or uh, I'm sorry, you could... Uh, go to college and then play, but you had to play for three years. They don't have that restriction yet in college basketball. I think they need to put a two-year restriction on something like that, but this is a step, I think, in that direction. I think the NBA is going to get rid of the one-and-done rule with the age requirement being 19, though I don't think it's going to happen for the next few years. It might be till about 2021 until the NBA gets rid of that rule. Some of the other things going on there, though, as well as also players... Because they could go and enter the draft, but they couldn't hire an agent. So now they have made the rule that players can also have agents while going through this draft process. They do have to be uh, NBA Players Association and NCAA certified. And then, of course, they have to terminate that agreement once the student enrolls back in school, uh, enrolls in school if it's a high school player, or returns to college. Just some things going on there. Just trying to clean up some of these issues. Again, the big thing with the with college basketball and the NBA, they've got to get rid of the one-and-done rule. Just get rid of that. Let players go out of high school because, yes, some of them screw up, but some of them are LeBron James and some of them are Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett. So it's a balance. you got to get the right people to talk to and those things going on there. You've got to get the education there for them. Also... It still doesn't happen where we talked about this last week with the North Carolina shoe incident that these players can't make any money off their likeness or sell any of their game-worn stuff. They need the NCAA needs to do that. We're gonna we'll talk about that. I will keep repeating myself until they finally start doing it. Let them make money off their likeness. Let them do autograph signings. Let them have a YouTube show. Let them have a podcast like this. Do something. But they haven't at this point. So, until that happens, I'm going to keep harping on it, but that's just me. Moving on to some other news. Former, uh, speaking of the NCAA violations and different things, former Louisville coach Rick Pitino 
uh, has a thoroughbred racing horse. He's been actually very active. I mean, he was the head coach at Kentucky. He's the head, he was the former head coach at Louisville. So, of course, he's going to be involved in thoroughbred racing. You can't live in Kentucky and make a lot of money and not be involved in thoroughbred racing. So, uh, but what ended up happening was he's got a horse named Party Dancer that just won a race in California. While that's f- why that is funny, though, many of you have asked, is that Patino, he was fired back in 2015, or it, it's part of a 2015 investigation into the team and coaches were involved in recruiting scandals involving exotic dancers. So, I'd love to think he does not understand the irony there, but I'm pretty sure he does. Maybe he's trolling people at this point. I don't know. But the horse won, so we'll see. It's just, I think, a funny note, and it just ties in really well with all these new NCAA rules that have been happening. Moving on to the Tennessee side of Shibbles and Bits, former Vol linebacker A.J. Johnson has signed a deal with the Broncos to enter their training camp for this season which is big news because uh, Johnson, he was com- uh, one of the two players that was acquitted of rape charges back on July 27th. Uh, that was big news here in Knoxville. He was charged back in early 2016. He played his last game in 20 November of 2015, the Kentucky game that year. And my wife and my parents and I were all at that game. And uh, he was the second leading tackler in Tennessee history, only behind the late Andy Spiva. And, he, you know, he was accused of this. He was he was dismissed from the team. He was charged with these rape, uh, charged with rape. Uh, and it, it took so long. I mean, the charges happened in February 2016. We didn't get a trial until July 2018. It took so long. It took almost four years, really, when you add everything up. For all of this going on, which just, again, it took too long for that. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I've got some friends who are who've essentially told me that if it took, takes this long to take it to trial, you should never try and take it to trial at that point. And when you look at what happened, I mean, the defense, the you know, they're... The, lawyers the defense lawyers didn't even call any witnesses they just rested that rested their case they believed that they had done enough with what the prosecution had done in cross-examining and all these other things and they just rested their case and then they had closing arguments and then the jury which was i believe seven women and five men they deliberated for 90 minutes and came back with a not guilty verdict so again i don't know if that case should have ever gone to trial especially the way it ended up, but it took way too long. So I hope A.J. Johnson gets a good shot there with the Broncos. I mean, he was a great player. He was projected even as high as a second-round draft pick for Tennessee before all of this happened. So hope he gets a shot. I'm rooting for him. And again, maybe we can get some positivity again. And again, it's a terrible situation. And again, no one really knows what happened except the three people that were in that room. But the trial happened. Johnson was acquitted. And let's move on and again he's moving on he's stayed in football shape and again he's getting this shot with the Broncos and I hope he gets a good look and uh, maybe makes the team maybe even the practice squad something like that he should be involved he's a really good football player uh, from Tennessee and should have gotten that except of the unfortunate events that happened uh, back in 2015 meanwhile also in Tennessee news a rivalry is back or it is coming back the Lady Vols and UConn, which was the best rivalry in women's sports up to that point, 
They are to renew their basketball rivalry starting in 2020 and 2021 with a home-and-home series. The first one's going to happen in Stores, Connecticut, and then in 2021 it's going to happen in Thompson Bowling Arena. Again, these two schools, if you are not familiar, have the most NCAA titles. UConn's got 11, Tennessee's got 8. They've been to 19 and 18 Final Fours, respectively. UConn leads the overall series 13 to 9. The Lady Vols, though, did win the last three in the series until Pat Summit discontinued the rivalry. She had uh, just not happy with some of the barbs that Gino Ariema was was throwing out there, the head coach of UConn, and also not happy just the way the recruitment of Maya, Maya Moore was going, just some underhanded dealings and different things like that. So that's kind of how all that shook out. Uh, but it'll be great to see this rivalry back. Uh, Tennessee, again, under Holly Warlick, is, of course, nowhere near the level that Pat Summit had it. But, I mean, Pat Summit's Pat Summit. So you can't expect that. But, again, they've gone through... It's been an interesting transition, and again, they still make the NCAA tournament, but they've been ousted in the second round these last two years, and last year, when they lost to Oregon State, that was the first time they'd ever lost an NCAA tournament game at home. So, Holly Warlick still got a ways to go. She did just get a contract extension for the next three years, so if the contract goes through, she'll be coaching these games, so we'll see what Holly Warlick and the Lady Vols will, able to, will be able to do, but... Even if UConn is still far above the talent-wise that Tennessee is at this point, it's still good to have UConn versus the Lady Balls back as a rivalry in women's college basketball. And I'm happy to see it, and we'll be looking forward to it when those teams take the hardwood. And, of course, we'll talk about that in 2020 and 2021 when those games take place. We'll talk about that here on the man, as I am the man in the arena, Michael Shibley on Modern Day Gladiators. That's where that's going to go. Wow. So we've got that. Thank you guys for listening to Shibbles and Bits. We're going to take down a little of the Pink Panther right there. Just fade that out. And we're going to hit the ring with some wrestling as well. My goodness, it was an incredible wrestling weekend. And we've got another great one coming up. It is insane. It is SummerSlam weekend coming up. But first, we got to talk New Japan. I talked about it last week on the show, and you know I love me some New Japan Pro Wrestling. The G1 Climax climaxed with some amazing, amazing matches. It came down in the A block to Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Kazuchika Okada in a renewal of their rivalry. It ended up with a draw, but because Tanahashi had more points, he won the A block, but it was a beautiful 30-minute draw. And then in the B block, it came down to the Golden Lovers, Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega. They had a just great, great brawl themselves. Just amazing spots there, but Kota Ibushi was able to get the win over the IWGP champion, Kenny Omega, and go advance out of the B block to face Hiroshi Tanahashi. And Tanahashi gets the win. The final happened in Budokan. Tanahashi, he thinks himself as a rock star, the ace of the promotion, a once-in-a-century talent, as he likes to call himself, and the old veteran, the former champ, gets the win, and of course, happening in Budokan, of course, that's where a rock star should, you think, cheap trick with their great album live at Budokan, that's where all of this happened, it was awesome to see, he went 8-1-1 and in the tournament overall, great matches all month long, through everybody involved, I mean, the matches that happened through these this month of tournament that has happened, just the 30 days of how this tournament's gone, and all these great matches, the quality 
of all of them better than anything the main roster in the WWE has put forth in the last two years. I, I, I will, I mean, you look at even the first night of B Block when you had Kenny Omega and Tetsuya Naito, or Kenny Omega and Tomohiro Ishii, which looks like that's going to be a title match coming up in the next couple of months. So that should be a fun one. And Kota Ibushi versus Tetsuya Naito, Kazuchika Okada and Jay White, or Kazuchika Okada and Evil. Some of these great. Matches there, Okada against Tanahashi, Tanahashi against Jay White. Just awesome matches up and down the card. The quality was amazing. You guys got to check this out. Go to New Japan, you know, NJPWWorld.com. It's worth the 999 yen a month to check all this out. Just great matches. And again, the final had some amazing things happen. Check it out. Tanahashi winning the G1 Climax 28. He was a survivor, which is what the the thing, the theme this year was, be a survivor. And they just went with it. And Tanahashi getting the win. He gets himself for winning it. He gets himself a championship opportunity in the main event of the Wrestle Kingdom event that they have every January 4th in the Tokyo Dome. It'll be Wrestle Kingdom 13. I'm looking forward to it. If Kenny Omega can still be champion, Tanahashi versus Omega, that would be something to watch because Tanahashi, again, still can bring it in the ring as he proved through this G1 Climax. But, you know, he's getting older, but it's showing that the the old lion still has something. That veteran has still got it. He wants one more title shot. He wants more run in the sun, and let's see if he can get it. It's a great story. It's wonderful to watch, and I'll be there to keep an eye on it. But before we move on to SummerSlam, again, just a quick rest in peace to Jim the Anvil, Nineheart, part, of course, with Bret Hart of the Hart Foundation, a staple in the WWE for a long time. Of course, when he was with Stampede Wrestling, he won an Anvil Toss competition up there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in Calgary, which was really cool, and that's where his nickname, of course, came from, winning the Anvil Toss, and of course married uh, one of Stu Hart's uh, daughters, one of Bret Hart's sisters, and uh, of course many uh, more modern WWE fans will know him as the father of Natalia, who of course has been on Total Divas. He's been on Total Divas. He had been battling Alzheimer's for some years now. He uh, passed away after a fall in his home. And uh, just, again, really tragic. One of my all-time favorite matches from the late 90s in the WWE was at Calgary Stampede, where it was the team of Ken Shamrock, Goldust, uh, the Road Warriors of the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal, and Stone Cold Steve Austin coming in as the Americans against the Hart Foundation, which was just amazing. Again, it's in Calgary at the Calgary Stampede. It was just an amazing 10-man tag. The Hart Foundation was Brian Pillman, Owen Hart, the British Bulldog, Jim the Anvil Nineheart, and Bret Hart. So all of them, these guys that were grew up and trained with Stu Hart there in the dungeon facing these Americans, you got to watch it. If you've got the WWE Network, look, find the Canadian Stampede in your house event from 1997 and check out that 10-man tag main event. It was insane. The heat was off the charts. Stone Cold Steve Austin at the time was just getting booed out of the building. He was hated in Canada. It was just amazing to watch. The hometown heroes there, the Canadians got the win with Owen Hart with the roll-up. But it's just really sad now that you look back on it. Only Bret Hart is still alive out of the, the five men on his team. I mean, you look at it. I mean, there's, I think there's five men who have passed on in that match. Hawk was on the, uh, the team with Stone Cold Steve Austin as part of the Road Warriors. He's passed away. And then Brian Pillman, Owen Hart, 
the British Bulldog and Jim the Anvil Nineheart have all passed away, and that was just 1997. That wasn't, it's was only 21 years ago. That's not that long ago. So, it's still really sad to see, but again, rest in peace, uh, Jim the Anvil Nineheart. And again, thoughts with uh, Natalia and her family as they go through this tough thing. And Bret Hart, and of course, the outpouring of support you've seen on Twitter and everything for everybody has just been wonderful. The WWE ran a wonderful tribute on Raw last night, so check that out. If you can. But of course, the big thing this weekend happening is the build to SummerSlam. But of course, NXT's got to do their TakeOver special first, which has been the better event out of everything that's been happening with the WWE. NXT has been killing it. And they've got five great matches at TakeOver Brooklyn 4 that you need to check out the Saturday night before SummerSlam. The Women's Championship on the line as Shayna Baszler defends her title against Kyrie Sane in a rematch from their matchup at the main event and final of the Mae Young Classic last year, where Sane got the win there, but Baszler has gone on to become NXT Women's Champion. You've got the Velveteen Dream and EC3 going at it in a singles match. Adam Cole, baby, uh, defending his North American Championship against Ricochet. The Undisputed Era is defending their tag team championships against Mustache Mountain. Mustache Mountain won at the NXT special in England during the UK championship event that they had there, but then they lost back to it in a great match as Tyler Bate threw in the towel because he couldn't stand to see his mentor Trent Seven getting uh, in that submission hold for much for any longer. It was a great moment in wrestling and a five-star match at that as Undisputed Era gets their championships back. And then, of course, the main event is Tommaso Ciampa, defending his NXT championship against Johnny Gargano in a last-man-standing match. That was going to be a triple-threat match uh, for the NXT championship uh, with Aleister Black involved, who was the champion, because Ciampa beat him because uh, Johnny Gargano, with the referee out, was trying to you know stop the shenanigans with Ciampa, but he accidentally hit Black with the title belt, and Ciampa got the pin on Aleister Black, but Aleister Black has been injured. Of course, now NXT has ruled, of course, in storyline terms. They've said he was just beaten up in the parking lot and left out of the match. So William Regal, the general manager there of NXT, has deemed a championship match between Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano instead of the triple threat. And it's going to be a last man standing match. For those of you who don't know what that is, you beat your guy up so much that he cannot stand to answer a count of 10. And whoever does that wins the championship. Running down my winners there, I've got Shayna Baszler retaining against Kerry Sane. I've got... I've got Velveteen Dream with the upset over EC3. I've got Adam Cole retaining against Ricochet for his North American Championship. I've got the Undisputed Era retaining against Mustache Mountain. And I've got Tommaso Ciampa retaining against Johnny Gargano. So I've got all the titles being retained in this. But it should be another great, amazing night of action there at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn as they have the superior card, and it will be done in two and a half hours, unlike SummerSlam, which is going to take probably about 12 hours when you include the pre-show the pre -show and all that other stuff. It is going to take forever because they have 13 freaking matches when you include the stuff that's happening on the pre-show. 
But hey, it's happening. It's SummerSlam. I'm stupid enough to watch it, and we'll run it down here for you. Uh, but it's going to be nuts. Starting with the matches on the pre-show, the Raw, ta- the Raw Tag Team Championships are on the line as the B-team of Curtis Axel and Bo Dallas take on the revival of Dash Wilder and Scott Dawson. I actually got the revival getting the win and getting the Tag Team Championships in that one. In a mixed tag team match, Rusev and Lana taking on Andre Cien Almas and Zelina Vega. I actually have uh, Almas and Vega getting the win in that one. The Cruiserweight Championship on the line as Cedric Alexander defends against Drew Gulak. I've got Cedric Alexander getting the win there and retaining his championship. Moving on to the main card that's not on the pre-show. We've got what should be, you would think the way it was built at the time and should have been built, should be a match that's higher up on the card. It's probably not. It's probably going to open. It's Daniel Bryan versus The Miz because, again, The Miz had this great promo against Daniel Bryan back when Bryan was still injured and the WWE would not let him compete. Uh, It was a great promo. You should check it out on Talking Smack. And uh, there's been heat there ever since. I do have The Miz getting the win over Daniel Bryan in that one. Finn Balor, Baron Corbin is an annoying just... Baron Corbin's like, oh, I'm bigger than you. I'm going to beat you kind of thing, even though Finn Balor got the win last time. I still got Finn Balor somehow getting the win again in that one. The U.S. Championship on the line is Shinsuke Nakamura defends against Jeff Hardy. I've got Nakamura with the win there. The SmackDown Women's Championship on the line, Carmella versus Becky Lynch, and Charlotte Flair has now interjected herself into the match as well. It's a triple threat match. I do still have Becky Lynch getting the win. I thought she would win it when it was solo, but I've got Becky Lynch getting it. I'm tired of the Carmella experiment. Just put it on someone who's just nothing against Carmella, but she's not the caliber of wrestler that Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair are, but I've got Becky Lynch getting the win and winning the championship in that one. You also got the Bludgeon Brothers defending their SmackDown Tag Team Championships against the New Day. I've got the Bludgeon Brothers getting the win there and retaining the IC Championship. That is on the line as Dolph Ziggler defends against Seth Rollins. The big one in this one is each man is allowed to have a corner man because Drew McIntyre has been interfering so much in Dolph Ziggler's matches, including all these against Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins gets a man in his corner and he picked the welcome back Dean Ambrose. Ambrose is now back. The Lunatic Asylum is back on Raw, which was great to see. The pop was amazing on Raw last night. Uh, And Dean Ambrose, of course, kind of looking like a small Triple H, really, uh, the way his haircut and beard are. But still cool to have Dean Ambrose back there. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I do have Seth Rollins getting the win and getting his Intercontinental Championship back. The Money in the Bank briefcase has been put on the line as Braun Strowman puts that briefcase on the line against Kevin Owens. I've still got Braun Strowman retaining it, even though Kevin Owens is going to be a game opponent for Strowman in that one. The WWE Championship on the line as AJ Styles takes on Samoa Joe in a great throwback to TNA match. I've actually got Samoa Joe getting the win. I think we're going to have a new WWE Champion, and it's going to be Samoa Joe. The Raw Women's Championship on the line as Alexa Bliss defends against Ronda Rousey. I've got Rousey finally getting the win and getting the strap and taking out Alexa Bliss, hopefully in very quick fashion. I think if they want to have you know Ronda Rousey as the badass that they're wanting her to be, she's got to dispatch Alexa Bliss pretty darn quick, and I think she does that. And, of course, the Universal Championship on the line. We've talked about this before. Brock Lesnar defending against Roman Reigns. At this point, I don't care. 
I don't care how it happens. The belt needs to come off Brock. I think Roman Reigns does get the win there, and he finally beats Brock Lesnar, and then I hope Braun Strowman just cashes in his money in the bank, and he has the championship, because I'd rather not have Roman Reigns with the title, but somehow Roman Reigns is going to end up with it whether we like it or not, and Brock Lesnar just needs to go away at this point. He can still come back maybe as a special attraction every once in a while with the WWE, but he can't just be champion anymore. It's tiring. I'm sick of it. It needs to go to somebody else. At least Roman Reigns will be there every week. So that's my point on that. Enjoy all the sports that's going to happen. We'll be back, of course, next week with more college football previews and all the other crazy stuff that's going on in the world of sports, plus, of course, a complete recap of SummerSlam. Thank you guys again for listening. I am Michael Shibley. This has been Modern Day Gladiators. Too sweet. I will see you next time.